Hello, Village. You're listening to Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast hosted by Forward Promise. If you don't know us, we're social change advocates focused on reclaiming the humanity of boys and young men of color and supporting the villages that nurture them. In our podcast, we'll talk with direct service practitioners, young people, researchers, and leaders in philanthropy, offering a deeper understanding of both the issues facing boys and young men of color and quality solutions for their healing, growing, and thriving. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to an important episode in our series, highlighting the voices of our grantees, fellows, and other stakeholders, and how they are pivoting their work in the face of this COVID-19 outbreak. We work with some phenomenal people who are fully committed to ensuring that boys and young men of color and their villages successfully emerge on the other side of this. This pandemic is exposing the disproportionate struggle faced by communities of color that is and always has been rooted in a history of dehumanization, racism, and colonization. These factors make boys and young men of color and their villages more vulnerable to illness, violence, and financial ruin. So we're dedicating these first episodes to sharing the issues and the solutions they've developed. We invite you to be thinking about sharing, and doing what you can to ensure that boys and young men of color heal, grow, and thrive both during this crisis and beyond. So hi, everyone. Thank you for being here today with us. My name is Dr. Rhonda Bryant. I am co-director of Forward Promise, a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And joining me today is Gina Womack, the executive director of Families and Friends, of Louisiana's incarcerated children, also known as FLIC, based in New Orleans. FLIC is a grassroots statewide member-based and intergenerational organization that's working to transform the systems that put children at risk of prison. FLIC is one of our newest grantees and they're partnering with the justice system to improve services and outcomes for boys and young men of color. So like many of you that are watching, our Forward Promise Village of Grantees, Fellows, and National Advisors have all kind of pivoted in this time of the COVID-19 crisis to address the pressing needs and the many issues that are coming to bear. So one of our um, focus areas is really on looking at the way that vulnerable communities and populations have been hardest hit by the crisis. And so we wanted to spend some time talking with our grantee organizations because they are the ones that are working to directly serve young people and their families. And we wanted to hear from them about how their work is being impacted, what are some of their greatest challenges, and what are some of their hopes coming out of this unfortunate ordeal. So Gina, thank you for being with me today and thank you for being willing to share about what Flick is working on in New Orleans and across the state of Louisiana. Thank you so much for having um, me. We really appreciate this. You know, at this time, it's really important that we really highlight the work of grassroots Black-led organizations who are on the ground, uh, getting the work done on some, a lot of times who are often you know, ignored um, up and until you actually need access to the families and then we go back to business as usual. And Mm -hmm. as you said, uh, Flick, we're in Louisiana. Um, We are in a state that has some of the worst outcomes for youth in all 50 states. We are consistently ranked at the bottom in education, 
poverty and mortality rates. And our, within our work, we represent some of the um, most vulnerable communities of colors. Um, our families continue to deal with trauma. You know, interesting um, enough, I was actually about to start looking at how are our kids doing 15 years post Katrina when the coronavirus hit. So, um, you know, basically the threat of this virus is very destabilizing to our families. And you're going to add that to the economic crisis. Families are losing their jobs. They're struggling to pay rent. And on top of that, as if um, they needed something more, a lot of our families who we deal with um, through the juvenile system, they're at the fear of, you know, for the safety of their young people. And we do education work. So like we have always had a lot going on. Mm, yeah, yeah. So how has this situation shifted the way that you're operating both internally with your staff and with the individuals and the families that you're serving? Yeah, so luckily or, you know, whatever, like Flick has been working for a while um, remotely because after Katrina, rents are just through the roof. We had gentrification. Um, we lost the place that we were working out of and we um, ended up, you know, renting a small space. So it wasn't large enough for the entire staff. And a lot of our work has been outreach anyway focused. So it was fine that we had some a little office space. So most of the time we're working remotely. However, you know, even though we uh, were were advanced in being able to work remotely, that we're inundated with emails, we're inundated with requests. We actually had some transitions at the um, end of last year. So we were onboarding staff and um, this has come and it's definitely has shaken us because lots of us have families that we're taking care of. I care for my elderly mother. That means that I'm have full-time care for her at this moment because I'm not letting anybody in or, you know, and I'm not going out, right? My mom's 92. Um, our other staff has elderly parents. They have young kids. So our um, deputy director of <laughs> finance, she has young kids that she's trying to homeschool. She's trying to do the work and she cares for her elderly mother. Um, one of our other staff member has, um, mom has the virus. And so it's, you know, and then another staff member, they have young kids. So we've definitely been impacted um, so much so that we're trying to work um, in a time where we're all overwhelmed. We're all stressed out with our own personal lives. And then we're working with the most vulnerable population. So we're hearing and we're constantly hearing stories of um, families who lose losing their jobs, young people who are home from school and they are not only bored, but they don't have access to um, digital, um, you know, they're not prepared, which is really sad state that in the 21st century, public school systems don't actually have access to um, computers. All young people should have access to computers and the internet and, um, we're hearing from parents who haven't heard from their young people um, who they are, you know, locked behind bars. And we have desperately been sending out messages to the governor, to the um, juvenile um, chief public defenders, you know, to free our kids. We are working with our national partners. We sent um, and local partners. We sent the governor a letter um, with over 30 organizational signatures to um, start looking at ways to release young people 
Um, we have national experts that have said that, you know, um, definitely young people who are locked in, in, in prison are unable to separate themselves and do the things that are necessary. And the virus has unfortunately come um, in the facilities from the outside, right? And mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, um, you know, Louisiana, we we lead in incarceration. We're like we're all on the downside on positive things like education and things for young people, but where it pertains to incarceration and um, you know the negative impacts, we're we're leading. And so, unfortunately, we're also leading, and where we represent. I think oh, more than half of the young people who across this uh, country have been um, detected positive for the coronavirus. So mm -hmm. families are, you know, they're concerned, they're scared. Um, and we've gone through um, a crisis before, like nothing like this, but the, we, you know, we're 15 years out from Katrina. And so um, discouragingly, we were hoping that we had learned a lesson and knowing that if you needed to do stuff for the general population, you need to do the same thing for our um, families and loved ones that are on the inside, both adults as well as young people, right? And as soon as we needed to start um, you know, staying in place, um, what were some of the things that could have happened while the young people were inside, right? And unfortunately, um, the response or lack of response that we receive is the reason we are where we are now. Like so many people, young people have tested positive as well as workers. So we're not only concerned for our young people, but we're concerned for the staff because they're on the front line. Right, and you're right. hearing a lot about that. And they are having to go home to their families and their young people as well. And so we're um, just really saddened by the lack of response and leadership around this issue. And it really speaks to one of the big things that we know happens in juvenile justice, where unfortunately, our children of color are more likely to be incarcerated, whereas other children are more likely to get access to community interventions that allow them to stay home with their families while still um, receiving the intervention services that they need to help them get back on track. So had we been more mindful about that structural and systemic um, disproportionality in the first place, then we wouldn't have had as many kids incarcerated exactly. while with this virus. Exactly. And that's really been our argument. Sometimes I feel like uh, the Lone Ranger and the crazy person in the room, like we passed juvenile justice reform in 2003. Part of that reform was all about community-based programs, like understanding what young people need, right? And providing those programs in the community. And the juvenile system was set up um, since, you know, in the beginning to actually only take children away from home and as a last resort. But right. um, we continually don't have the, um, our young people continually don't have access to enough um, community-based alternative programs. I mean, Flick put together a three-point platform that pretty much spoke to, for the last 20 years, we've spoken to families. And basically, you know, our families are in poverty and unless and until we look at eradicating poverty, right, our families can never be prepared for a crisis, not the coronavirus, not another Katrina, 
you know, because all of those things cost money, right? And so if we are as leaders um, and we're looking for our leaders of our, um, our free world and our states to be more thought provoking about this issue, right? The governor here um, released the statistics on the coronavirus and like he seemed to be surprised that it was, Im you know, um, impacting our black community at an alarming rate. And so you're setting up a task force at this juncture, like we have task force that looks at poverty and uh, we have a black men and boys, different kinds of task force, but we continually set up, um, I guess, think tanks, if you will, that are not as far thinking as we need to be, right? And we should be, these are things that we should be doing on the front end. You know, we shouldn't wait for a crisis to illuminate, right? That um, the disparities and how we treat our black and brown communities is still, we are still operating under a racist system. And we don't wanna have those conversations. You know, we wanna call it something different. We wanna dodge around it and say, you know, try to use the nicer words. But every time we have a catastrophe or a crisis, we come to the same thing. People in poverty can't evacuate for hurricanes because we have no money, right? You cannot get the mental health because we don't have a system that's set up um, in a way that's going to um, be supportive. You know, we have a racist system that looks at um, black people, black and brown people very differently. So you have all these health disparities. We know, um, and so when you release the report and say 70% of the people who are dying from this virus in Louisiana are Black. Oh my God, let's set up a task force. No, let's look at those things, those root causes, right, that we've been talking about since the you know the beginning of time. You can't have a racist system. You cannot have a system that um, does not value all people, all children, right? We have children in the 21st century that do not have laptops, right? So the private schools are the better funded schools are the, the schools that are paid more attention to. They have been able to shift to um, digital like, cause they've been doing digital, right? But that's not happening in, in, in the poor communities. Um, so here they bought computers, but now we have to distribute them into the communities. Um, I was talking, we had a staff meeting right before um, this, and I was getting more information. You know, some in Shreveport, some of the families, okay, we, um, some of our staff and community members got together and got laptops for the kids. And then they go to log on to the service for the school and it's not working. Right, like because the schools are not equipped at right. this point. You know, we're still in like New Orleans trying to buy laptops and get them. We're a month into this pretty much, right? And so, how are our kids supposed to be getting the act, you know, educational opportunities that they need if they don't have what they need to be able to? you know, live in the 21st century. We don't have internet, you know, or it's too expensive. And so these are not new issues. These are right. things that have been plaguing our community for a very long time. These are the things our families, Flix um, has sat at tables and explained to them. We put together a three-point platform. Our kids need 
you know, access to mental health services because these are the, you know, you can't keep arresting kids because they don't have access to mental health treatment. And our previous go governor, Jindal, um, you know, took away so many mental health beds. And so instead of using the data to actually make um, good decisions to solve these problems, you know, we wait until a catastrophe, everybody's up in arms. I've been inundated with speaking to media, but these are not issues that are new. We, you know, we can't even get access to media um, uh, unless and until they need actually, oh, let's call, you know, Flick, they have actual parents. Um, but at this point, like, you know, we're, we're fueling media calls. We're trying to have parents talk to media, but parents are weary. They're exhausted. They're scared. Um, they can't always talk on, freely on behalf of their kids when they're under um, state control behind bars, you know, and um, telling, we've been telling these stories um, for the last 20 years. Right. And I'm hoping that they stick and that we actually <laughs> start working on the real root causes. And that is equitable, you know, equality and things like that. And for real, for real, not just using it as a buzzword. Right. So Gina, as a grassroots organization that's on the front lines with families right now, what does your organization most need in order for you to be able to serve the young men that you're working with and their families? Right, thank you. Well, not only young men, young women as well. Oh, women. Yes, yes, we continually forget the girls who are, are locked in prison and they have various needs as well. Um, so we do, I mean, our organization is built on dreaming. Right. Like what um, and trying to get our families to dream like we need additional um, general operating funds. We need funders to really understand that, you know, the grassroots folks, um, the black -led organizations are the organizations that need the most. Right. Not the least. Not to have the expectation that we can um, do everything on a shoestring budget because we definitely try to make that happen, but we need to be well resourced. Um, we had to contract with um, a communications person, like we can't afford to hire a, a, a person. But every grassroots organization needs a communications person. We need a policy person. You know, we need people, like we need a full gambit of a staff. Uh, right now, Flick has um, five full-time staff people, but we're a statewide multi-generational organization. You know, when I talk to a family member, that can, sometimes that can take me out, <laughs> you know, like I need therapy after mm -hmm. talking to one because, um, and we need people to understand the multi-issues. So I'm talking to a family, she is frantic and folks are frantic because they're like, I haven't talked to my kids. Like we get two free phone calls in the, a week <clears throat> and some stamps, but I need to talk to my child on a regular daily basis, right? I need to know, I need to be able to see them. Like we haven't been able to set up uh, ways for families to be able to see their children. like. You know, I'm the only person here caring for my mom because I've been in the house. She's 92. You can't come from the outside. My sister is like freaking out 
because although she knows her sister is here caring for her mom, she can't see, you know. So I was like, you know, I let her in, the, you know, under the certain circumstances to come because we need to be able to see our loved ones. We need to be able to look in their eyes and know that they're doing fine and a phone call is good, but nothing beats the face to face. And I get that we can't go inside the prisons, but um, we should have it set up so our young people are able to. Um, be on calls with their families and have some visualization um, so that we can lay eyes because I might be talking to you and you may be saying some stuff because somebody might be looking over your shoulder because not that you tell the truth, but you might have a black eye, you might be beaten up, you know, I don't know what's happening. So we need to um, uh, be able to work and get all of those stories and have enough staffing that can understand what our families are going to and spend hours at a time on calls and hearing all the different issues and putting them together in a way that we're caring for our people as whole people. So I can't just say like, okay, I'm sorry you're homeless. I just need to really hear the story about how your child is doing in, um, in the prison, right? And I need you to talk to the media and share your story. No, I need to be able to hear an entire story and then provide support for that whole person so that we, if we're talking about self-determination and freedom, that they know that um, we're caring for their whole bodies, right? And their mind and their, um, we may not be able to do everything for them, of course, but we can actually connect them with um, the various services. And we need people to be talking about this holistically, right? And um, if we also like long-term or short-term, you know, we need um, our, our donors and our funders to really understand that, especially if young people are returning home, you know, they went into a system broken and they went into a broken system, right? We need to have um, services and mental um, health or just some healing mechanisms, uh, which was really the thing that we were really excited about with the Ujima project that we got funding from uh, for Robert Wood Johnson, right? Like, um, how can we celebrate the young person's return home? How can we connect them with people who are going to care for him, that person, him or her and their families and help and not just judge, right? And so um, those are uh, uh, long-term and short-term solutions, but we need to be able to hire our members, our folks. We need to be able to provide them with love and support and um, um, trauma care and train them while they're getting paid, right? Um, and, and, and then help them go back into the um, society either as um, folks that can help in the um, inside the system, sit at tables, you know, um, so that they can share um, what the needs are and be able to go in groups, not just one person at the table. So you got 20 systems people and then you have a flick person or a parent or, you know, just saying, yeah, but, you know, or if we can do this and they go, yeah, okay. Um, but then it never happens. You know, mm -hmm. we need 
our funders to really understand holistically, right, um, and be more informed. Um, it always struck me when we would get funding from a funder knowing that we were anti-charter school, privatization of schools, but then some of the funders were funding, you know, folks that were pro-charter, like um, without having a, a full understanding of the, the spectrum and how intentionally or unintentionally something can undo the dreams that we really want, you know, and so it just really having spaces that we are um, having collective conversations on real solutions, you know, right. and that only comes from having people at the table and also working with them, because as I was saying to my staff, I was like, you you know, you got to have deeper conversations and help people dream because like our families haven't had an opportunity to dream since ever, right? right. Like, and it's unfortunate because families, um, people, mothers, fathers who, you know, people who give birth to young people or babies, they all have hopes and dreams. You know, no yeah. one ever dreams that their child is going or anticipates or look forward to their young person going to prison or having to um, fight for a good school. You know, you got to choose between a D or F school or, you know, or D or an F school in your community or outside of your community, right? right. Like those are just choices that make no sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that gets us back to um, really seeing the humanity of people and the humanity of families and understanding that um, our Black families absolutely have the same hopes and dreams and wishes and desires for their kids. And we have to do better and do more to give them every opportunity to every realize that exactly. dream. And if we're doing anything less than that, then we're doing a disservice to not just our Black families, but we're doing a disservice to our entire nation. Exactly. So Gina, I want to thank you so much um, for just sharing everything that you all are dealing with at Flick on the front lines. Um, and you know, we're always here to be of support yeah. and to help as much as we can um, to try to advance this agenda to get our young people freed and back home. Yes. So we're going to keep pushing and we're going to keep pushing together. Thank you. We really, really appreciate everything that Robert Wood Johnson is doing. I mean, especially looking at incarceration from a, a health perspective, because um, if we're going to get healthy and get whole, we can't rely on incarceration um, at every turn for our young people or our adults, right? Like we need to really look at um, how we can move differently as a system and actually have multidisciplinary teams and um, services that work in our community for our black and brown people that as you said will support the entire you know country the entire world as james baldwin said you know for these are all of our children and we will profit by or pay for whatever they become yes Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Gina. Um, I appreciate you again taking the time to share and we will be continuing to keep in touch. No problem. Thank you all and stay blessed, stay safe. Um, yes. and, uh, we're praying for your family and all your loved ones. Thank you and the same to you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast. We hope these conversations prompt a deeper commitment to action in the field and in philanthropy to create a society that is fair and equitable for all. For more information about Forward Promise, visit forwardpromise.org or follow us on social media. We're simply Forward Promise on Facebook and at forward underscore promise on Twitter and Instagram.